Uh, God, we thank you that we can come and gather to hear a word. Thank you for the story of Job and what you might speak to us through it. We pray that we might be transformed by new perspectives, that we might be your love in the world, and that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God. Amen. Amen. So I have a question for you, and I'm imagining I know the answer. And the question is, is have you ever said the wrong thing at the wrong time? Yeah? Ever like put your foot just like straight up in your mouth and just wish that you just like had gone back in time, like, I don't know, 30 minutes or maybe a few days, and you just wish that you had never spoken the words that you had done? As a pastor, that's one of your greatest fears, right? I get up in front on a regular basis, and I hope that I don't say something. You know, fear of public speaking is real. And just because you do it sometimes doesn't mean it's uh, less real. You actually have to train yourself to like get over that fear. And one of mine is I, I love people, but I can't remember names super, super well. And so like I have to like try to remember it. So name tags, you are wearing your name tags. Thank you. Helps me out, right? Helps me out. But Seriously, one of the things I would do is when I was first starting my ministry, uh, I was a pastor in downtown Chapel Hill, and it was like the steeple, right? You know, and everyone get married in the steeple in their college town, right? Like, it's just the thing. So we were doing weddings all the time. We actually had to limit them because it was kind of getting out of control. And so we had weddings all the time that we were doing, and with people that I had no idea who they were. So like, I mean, aside from meeting with them like a couple of times to prepare, but like they weren't like coming to church and going to fellowship activities. They weren't like people that I knew and was friends with. It was just like, hey, we want to get married in the steeple. And so let's do it. But the stressful thing about that was not the premarital counseling with them. It wasn't anything. It was remembering their name in the middle of the service. I would like kind of glue these little pieces of paper and I would put them in and then write their name in the book of worship because that was, you know, before it was like socially acceptable to hold an iPad as a pastor in front of people. Um, and so like, I would just like glue them all and I would meticulously get ready just in the event that I would remember the names in the moment because, you know, I'm thinking about all the pieces and like where they're standing, what they're doing, their emotions, like names just will elude me in that time. And so I was at annual conference, uh, which is a time when we gather as a region of United Methodists. And one of the beauties about that is that we gather together and you get to spend time with colleagues, right? Because, you know, what other people know what it's like to like preach or do weddings or do different things. And so we were talking about weddings and this like, fear of names and I had a friend that had heard this story before, but he, he shared this story that he was, you know, kind of like caught up. It was his first placement and he was doing uh, this wedding and he realized halfway through that he had been saying the wrong name for the bride, right? So he had realized this in the moment and like immediately like flush red, right? You know, like he's like, so anxious. And then her name comes up in the liturgy again. And he's like, what do I do? And so I'm just going to roll with it. And he kept saying the name, right? And then like the funniest part to me as someone who's been kind of in that mode, it has happened to me, although not all the way through, is that he said, there was a small part of his brain that thought to himself, if you just pass out right now, everyone will only remember that you passed out, not that you said the bride's name wrong the whole time, right? Like, and it was, it's just like so funny to think about like that moment because 
we've all been there, right? Like you've talked to someone and you got their name wrong and then you realize halfway through the conversation that you were getting it wrong or like it was a story that you had thought that you're like, oh yeah, you're from like Minnesota and you just kind of like roll with that for a while in the conversation and then realize, no, that was the other friend that you had recently met. I mean, like we've all done it, right? And it's even worse though, when you do it to like someone you're quasi close to and not just like you forget something, but like you say the wrong thing that you wish that they just took completely the wrong way, right? Like it was like they interpret it as completely judgmental and you know, you were trying to be loving and like it creates a riff in the relationship. And I know that that's happened with me and friends that I've had before. I've said the wrong thing or said it in a way that they thought was wrong and then there's this like fracture in the friendship. And you might be wondering, Brian, where are you going with this? And what does that have to do with global perspective? I'll get there, right? Because this is the story of Job, right? The scripture reading I had for today is the story of Job's friends. So let's back up. Let's say you don't know who Job is. Totally fine. Job is a book in the Old Testament where it talks about this divine drama that's unfolding about this character named Job. You have God and this adversary character, and the adversary comes and says, you know, Job's a good guy, but I bet he won't love you and worship you if things go wrong in his life. And so he says that, and God kind of goes back and forth, no, Job's great. And he's like, well, let's see. And they make this like divine wager, and it's super like crazy to think about this divine wager going on. But essentially God is like, okay, do whatever you want to do to Job, like the start small, right? And, you know, then he starts small and he like kills the whole family basically, right? Or like all of his possessions. And then he gives him boils. And then he does all these things go wrong with Job. Like every literal thing in his life just crumbles based on this divine wager that was happening. And of course, we know as readers, it's a divine wager, but Job has no idea what is happening to him and why it's happening. And he is completely devastated. Like he has lost his property, he has lost his family, and his wife was even saying, why do you even believe in God anymore? God has cursed you, you've done something, right? And Job was in this state. I mean, he was depressed and he was angry and he was frustrated with God, kept asking a question over and over again, vindicate me, oh God, which means make me right. And he was trying to figure out like what had he done or why, but he had known that he hadn't done anything wrong. And so then on come the friends and the friends come and they hang out for a little bit, but then you know what they do? They open their mouths. And what we have in this scripture is the first time they open their mouths. They come and they sit with Job and they probably let Job cry. They probably let Job vent. They probably do the things that friends ought to do. And then they start to say, well, Job, there might just maybe, there may be a reason for some of these things that have been happening to you, right? You know, God doesn't, doesn't punish anyone. And then they say, God, you know, really just punishes those who need punishing. And you must have done something or your kids must have done something. You know, like something must have happened. Just repent, right? Just say you're sorry to God and God will fix the problem. And you're at the end, the last scripture I read, your, your days are going to be happier, Job. Just, just say you're sorry, right? To God. And this just infuriates Job, right? Because Job is like, I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. 
And everything they try to do to help actually just reiterates the problem for them or for Job. And it kind of goes back and forth. And most of the book is this kind of back and forth where Job's friends continue to say the wrong thing, the wrong thing, the wrong thing. Until finally, Job's vindicated at the end of the story. That Job stays true to who he is and his belief and his questions. And then God and Job begin a dialogue. And then Job is restored in that And not every story has the happy ending like Job has. It's not all Disney, right? But there's this uh, reader that I'm reading the lens of Job through today, and his name is Gustavo Gutierrez. He's probably one of the, like, most influential theologians from the global south in the 20th century. He's a a professor at Notre Dame. He's a Catholic priest uh, from the Dominican, like, order within the Catholic priesthood, and he writes about something that later gets coined as liberation theology. And he uses the story of Job. He has a a book called On Job, and he talks about how the story of Job is the story of the poor. The story of Job is a story of people that live in a plight that has nothing to do with their faithfulness and lack thereof. And yet so many people try to interact with the poor as if they did this to themselves. They sweep in and they try to fix the problem and in fixing the problem, all they do is relive the friends. They do this on behalf or try to answer the plight or try to go in and fix. You know, one of our partnerships in mission is Tandana Foundation. And one of the reasons we value them in mission is because they go out and they ask not, how do I fix your problem? They ask, how, what is your problem? And how can we support you in you fixing it? And it's a, a very subtle but important shift. And this is what Gutierrez talks about is that God is not like outside of the poor. God is with the poor. He goes on to say it's preferential treatment towards those who are poor because that's where Jesus abides. As he lives there, breathes there, is with them. And friends, if you didn't know, Jesus was poor, (laughs) right? Jesus was very poor. He was a peasant of this like sort of outskirt region of the Roman Empire, and he was a craftsman, a day laborer, and he was a handyman, so to speak. He wasn't like the like fancy carpenter that, you know, made the like awesome things, right? And they say that Jesus, as God, goes to that place. And in that place is with us. That God's love is there as, not God coming to fix. The professor that made me read Gutierrez for a class would all of a sudden remind us, and he would go, there. Jesus is calling us from the cross. And the cross is the place of suffering. 
And he would remind us that Jesus is calling from the places of suffering and oppression. And all too often, those places are places where the poor reside, where their you know, weight they carry is not because they did something wrong. It just happens to be that they were born in the wrong country at the wrong time when there was conflict, when there was patriarchal systems, whatever. And Gutierrez makes the point to say that God's salvation then, the kingdom of God, is the time when those people are able to find justice. But not so much that we come in to fix their problems, but that they're able to get there themselves. That the world's resources and communities kind of lifts them up so that they can kind of go and attain what they can do on their own. How many of you have watched The Way of Water, the Avatar movie? Yeah, seen that? Well, back when I was in grad school, it wasn't The Way of Water that we were reflecting on. It was the first Avatar movie. And I hadn't thought of it. I just like movies, right? I kind of like I'm a shallow level, like sometimes I go deeper, but you know, just did that. But I had to read, uh, the, or read an article about the Avatar movie and about the savior complex that it shows, right? Because the Avatar movie, the first one, is a story, it's like a sci-fi story of this like going to space and like finding this new land and we're trying to get the resources out of it, but there's this like blue people that are kind of Native American-esque type people, like that are really connected to the land and don't want to hurt anything. And, and these like capitalist, like people are like mining everything, trying to get the material that they need. And, um, and so essentially all of a sudden they have this like uprising, right? The Native people like uprise against, and it's this like guy that transforms into one of those beings, like the avatar, right? And he leads the way and like rallies everyone there. And the, the point is, is that what would this have looked like without the white guy that needed to come in to kind of save them in this? Or how does this like reiterate this like mentality that we have, that we are the ones to go and fix everyone's problems? And I talked a few weeks ago about being a fixer, right? One of the most powerful sermons that I've heard and one that I've tried to model at different times is a sermon on Christmas Eve from this guy named Sam Wells. He's now uh, the pastor or uh, the priest at an Episcopal church or Anglican church in London. But he talks about God with us. And he talks about on the incarnation and Christmas is not about God being for us. It's about God being with. And there's some sort of power that takes place just by God's presence dwelling among us. By searching for God in a particular area and knowing that God is there brings a power to that either social location or actual location. Gustavo Gutierrez talks about that as God is with the poor. But of course, we all know that God is with all of us. And so the perspective that he brings is to not diminish someone by thinking that they are less, 
because God is already with us. Give people the dignity that you might see them as image bearers of the image of God is within you. Last week, I had the opportunity to lead camp for some of our keiki and for other keiki. I was up at Camp Mokalea, and in the chapel on the back of it is this like giant mural on the back of the chapel. And it's really beautiful, but a great piece of the analogy is they have this like little puka that they pull out of the mural and it has all the switches and stuff. So it's really easy to kind of paint the picture. So I, I take the puka out and I hold it up front and I say that God is with us and the image of God is in us. And God needs each of us to give of ourselves to make the painting and the beauty of God more visible to the world. And then we look back at the mural and I say, what's missing? And they go, oh, it's that little spot where the switches are. And I go, that's right. And then I hand it to a kid. I say, could you put it back for me? And then they go and they put it back. God needs us to do that. God doesn't need me to do it for other people. God needs us to do it ourselves. God needs us to empower others to do the same, that they can know that their self-worth and their goodness and the love of God is not tied to any of the particulars of their experience. Job's love, God's love of Job did not change. God did not judge Job. What was wrong in this situation was the friends that believed that God's love, God's will, all of that was contingent upon Job doing something, right or wrong. And the whole point of the story is that God's love is unconditional. And that our response, our faithfulness, doesn't determine our future. God is with us no matter what. And God never leaves us. And that's the power of the story of Christ. But it's also the power that Gutierrez reminds us. That God is with you and with the poor. So let us go and find God in our midst and empower all to give the image back to God so that the beauty of God's love is more full. We're going to come to a time in our service where we invite us to pray together. And so I will uh, lead us in a time of silence as we kind of move through a liturgy of the prayers of the people. And as we do so, I want to invite you to pray on behalf of the places of suffering and places of poverty and the places of need out of that vein, the vein that we were just talking about. Not that like everything is just fixed, but that the people might find the dignity within themselves to begin to work towards justice and that the world around might see that in them and support them. So let us pray for the world and for our loved ones. Holy and gracious God, you come to us in Jesus and you remind us that you are with us always.
and as someone who came from the glory of heavens to be a poor peasant, we remember that you're also especially with the places of poverty, of pain, and of suffering. And unfortunately, there's no words that we can say to fix those, no reasoning we can give for the problems that people face. Instead, our prayer is for dignity and hope to emerge. And as we look throughout the world and we see the places of need and suffering, we pray for just that. Where there's conflict or oppression or structures of pain, we lift up a prayer for hope to emerge. For all of creation, we pray. You have made everything beautiful. Let us work alongside as one of your created to restore and rejuvenate as opposed to destroy and consume. And for our nation, we pray. Giving thanks for the birth of our country that we celebrate on the 4th of July. And remembering some of the values that held us together and that continue to do so. Values of freedom and equality a value of dignity, no matter your age, race, religion. And so where there is oppression and pain and suffering, we pray for hope and dignity to abide. For our local community, we pray that we might remember the story of Job as we encounter those who are struggling to put a roof over their head or to pay for their meals or their health care. We pray for hope and dignity. And for our local church, we pray, giving thanks for our bishop, giving thanks for our previous pastor here, D.S. Tom Choi, who recently became the district superintendent for our region. 
the Hawaii district. And for those that we know and love, for Jack Morris and his continued recovery, for Sam Cox, for the others that we mention in our hearts, Cliff Nobriga, And for those that are near and dear to our hearts, we lift them up to you. And so in the name of the one who is sent to be with us, we pray. Amen.